Exodus 4 this morning. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 18, go on down through verse 31 and the end of the chapter. And the main idea this morning, this is a, a, actually a really fun and interesting text if you read ahead this week, and I hope you did, uh, you are probably asking, what is he going to do with some certain parts of this section? How does this make sense with the Bible and, and, and the message of God altogether? How does it, how does it work? And, and so hopefully we can learn how it fits in the book of Exodus together this morning. And the main idea of this section, what I want you to walk away with is this, that salvation comes through the blood of the Son. Salvation comes through the blood of the Son. We're actually going to follow Moses on an adventure as he gets ready to return to Egypt. He's going to say a goodbye, be given a reminder, be the person that's rescued, and then he's going to go with Aaron to visit the people that will become the Israelites with God's message. Let's pray together. I'll give you some background, and then we'll get into verse 18. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us. Ask that I might be the conduit through which you would speak to your people. Pray that we would um, bring ourselves underneath of your word, that we would submit ourselves to it, and learn what you have to teach us there. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, and that you would be our teacher this morning, and that you would apply these truths to our hearts that we might grow into Christ-likeness, that we might become and practice what you have declared us to be, which is holy. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember, the book of Exodus opens up with the people of Israel enslaved, or they're not enslaved to the Egyptians just yet, but we're given a genealogy. They're living in Egypt, and they're doing all right. You get that genealogy on down through Joseph, who's just died in Genesis. And then in verse 8, we, we are hit with this news that there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. And because of this new Pharaoh, any deal that the Israelites had had with Egypt before, uh, any um, agreement that Joseph had, like a handshake agreement, it wasn't going to be honored. And so you've got Israel living there, and we were told that God is keeping his promise to increase his people. And so they've multiplied, and Abraham's descendants are becoming as the sands on the shores. And this new Pharaoh is a little bit freaked out by that. They're, the Israelites are they're outnumbering the Egyptians almost at this point, and so he comes up with a plan. He says, guys, let's oppress these people so that they don't overtake us or join with our enemies against us, and so they enslave the Israelites. And then a funny thing happens, even though they are enslaved and oppressed, one of the things you, you would expect during this kind of slavery is that uh, the libido would be a little bit lessened, right? That the Israelites wouldn't be having as much children, but we read that the more that they are oppressed, the more they increase. And so God continues to bless Israel. He's continuing to keep this promise. And so the Pharaoh goes back to the drawing board and he comes up with this plan. He says, we're going to secretly kill the sons of the Israelites. And he asks the midwives of the Hebrews to perform this task and they don't. And so that plan fails and falls flat. So all right, he, he comes up with another plan and says, we're going to be just going to take part in explicit genocide at this point. So all the Hebrew boys that are born, they need to be cast into the Nile. And that brings us into chapter 2, and we've been seeing that God is present and at work in all of those circumstances. He continued to increase his people, and now our attention was drawn to a very special child, the man that would become 
Moses. And, and we saw that this special child, uh, he's likened to a special deliverer that God has raised up as his parents put him in a basket. And the word for, that's used for basket there, if you remember, is ark. And because we're supposed to connect Moses with another figure in the Old Testament back in Genesis, remember Noah, Noah's ark. And so this is going to be a very special representative of God, a special deliverer. And as this ark is placed in the Nile, as Moses is technically cast into the Nile, he's in the ark, and Pharaoh's daughter comes across him. And if you remember through a series of very fortunate events, he is adopted into the royal household. And so we think to ourselves, here we have a deliverer. God is going to do something amazing through this man Moses. He's looking the part. But then Moses, after 40-ish years of growing up in, in the palace, uh, he's empathizing with, or I'm sorry, sympathizing with his brethren. He believes himself to be a Hebrew. He identifies with the Hebrews, and one day as he goes down among the Hebrews, he tries to deliver one of them as he is being beaten by a taskmaster. He actually bungles this attempt very badly. He ends up killing the Egyptian taskmaster, and then the next day when he goes out after he's hid the body, he tries to break up a fight between this Hebrew and another guy, and he shouts at him, who gave you, who made you prince and ruler over us? Moses recognizes that he would be rejected. So are you going to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? Eventually, Pharaoh finds out that Moses is guilty of this murder, and so Moses flees to the wilderness, and that's what we talked about last week at the beginning of chapter 3. We found him in Jethro's household. That's his father-in-law. Remember, we said he's kind of living in his basement and tending his sheep, and he's not successful by any stretch of the imagination. He's having a very difficult time. Life isn't going like he thought it would. Very quickly, Moses went from royalty to an outlaw. He was on the run in in exile. Sure, he had a wife and a child, but still he identified with the Hebrew people. He named his first son, remember, Gershom, which meant I was a sojourner in the land. He's living in a foreign land dwelling. And that's where we saw Moses have this really weird experience where he saw a burning bush and his curiosities led him to have this experience with God who was actually in the bush. The bush, if you remember, was burning but not burnt up. We we said it was before the days of those logs that look like they're on fire and it's actually a gas fireplace. So this was pretty extraordinary. And the voice tells Moses, I'm going to rescue my people in Egypt, right? I prophesied, it's the God of Abraham and Isaac and um, Jacob, and we are remembered of the promise, we remember the promise that God made back in Genesis 15, that the people would be in slavery for 400 years, and then they would come out of the land and be taken into the promised land. And God is announcing to Moses that he is about to fulfill this great promise. And he tells Moses, I'm going to rescue Egypt, and everything is sounding pretty good to Moses. Moses is like, yeah, that's my people, you're going to rescue them, you're going to bring them out of slavery. And then God tells Moses his plan, and I'm going to send you to do it. And Moses says, whoa, 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 whoa. And the rest of our time last week, from I think around verse 11 in chapter 3, all the way to where we are in chapter 4, is basically Moses complaining, right? Moses is trying to get out of this task. He says, who will I tell him sent me, and then what will I tell him? And God says, you will tell them the I am sent you. I am that I am. I'm the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. You can tell them I sent you, and then you give them my word. Tell them my word that I am going to rescue them from the hand of Pharaoh. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. It's not going to look like it's going to work at first, but that's only so I can showcase all of my awesome power so that everyone in Egypt and in all the world will know that I am God and that I am with my people. 
And then Moses says, but they're never going to believe me, right? That's the beginning of chapter 4. And then God gives them those three signs with the staff. The staff turns into a snake. Moses grabs it, does a leprosy thing where he dips his hand into his robe. It comes out leprosous. Then he dips it back in, comes out clean. And the third sign is he dumps water on the ground and it turns to blood. After all that, Moses says again, God, can't go. They're not, I don't speak well. And God says, who made man's mouth? You think that's a problem? Come on, child, please. And then Moses says, just send somebody else in verse 13 of chapter 4. Please just send someone else. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. God gets a little, little upset at this point, although he's been gracious and patient and compassionate with Moses. And he says, all right, I'll let, I'll let Aaron go with you and, and he'll speak for you. And at the very end, verse 17, the last thing we read is that God tells Moses, don't forget your staff. Take your staff with you. And the staff becomes one of the means by which God, Moses performs all these great miracles of God throughout the rest of the Exodus. And it serves a very important purpose because it reminds us of God's presence. And that was his answer to Moses' initial objection at the beginning of chapter 3. Moses says, I can't go. Send somebody else. I don't want to go. And, and, and God says, I will be with you. And that's what is supposed to be Moses' comfort. God is saying to Moses, the deliverance of my people, the success of my mission, doesn't depend on who you are, but on who I am. God called Moses. He sent Moses, and then he gave him the assurance of success and the assurance of his presence. And we said, likewise for us, God has called us. He sent us out onto mission to wield the gospel And he has assured us that his people will hear and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. And he assures us with his presence. God is present and at work, and he has been throughout all of the Exodus. And so now we find ourselves in verse 18 of chapter 4. And Moses is still not exactly brimming with confidence at this point, right? Look at how he approaches his father-in-law in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro says to Moses, Go in peace. Moses' self-doubt is really obvious here, I think, just in the way that he asks Jethro the question. He doesn't say, Hey, let me go back to Egypt so I can, through the power of the great I Am God who has revealed himself to me, rescue Egypt and lead them out. Rescue Egypt. Rescue the Israelites and lead them out of Egypt and into the promised land. He doesn't say that. He says, Hey, um, Jethro, can I go and see if anybody's still alive? He's not exactly confident. Maybe they're not even alive at this point. At any rate, Jethro grants his request and says, be on your way, go in peace. And we read in verse 19, as God reminds Moses of what exactly he's to do, the Lord says to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt. All the men who were seeking your life are dead. God isn't telling Moses that the statue of limitations has expired on his uh, killing the Egyptian or anything fun like that. He's just telling him that I am beginning to bring about this deliverance. I'm beginning to free my people. Those who are oppressing my people are passing away. And it actually should remind us of uh, another child, actually another time forward, if we look forward into the New Testament, uh, where an angel appears to Joseph and says, return to the land. Those who were seeking the child's life are dead. And so once more, we see the Christological connection with Moses. He continues, 
So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey. Again, if you remember in the um, narratives of Jesus' birth, that all the families on a donkey are heading for a land that God has called them to. And they go back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hands. Moses here obeys. He, he is listening to God. Even though he might not be fully confident, even though he's worn out all his excuses, he's grasping that staff, a reminder of God's presence, and he heads for the town that he grew up in. Now, I, I imagine that Moses never imagined, imagine you never imagined, I, I, I don't think he ever imagined that he would return to Egypt, especially not after, he's, he's like 80-ish at this point, and especially not to confront the most powerful man in the world at the time, the Pharaoh, and make a command of him. This is not an easy task that God has assigned to Moses. And so I imagine he's following these instructions from the Lord a little bit like you might uh, when you're lost somewhere and you get directions from a stranger on the street. And they tell you, yeah, take a left down here, take a right there. And then you're kind of helpless. And so you're just like following those directions the best you can, wondering, did they just lie to me to get me out of their hair? Am I getting more lost? He's very hesitant here, but still he obeys, even though it's not easy. The mission that God sends Moses on is a difficult one. And throughout it, Moses struggles with his role of deliverer. I mean, he wrestles with doubts. And still, he presses forward in obedience. Submission to the will of God is almost always a challenge. I mean, God requires and will require things of you that are not easy but that are always worth it. I wonder what causes you to wrestle with doubts? What position has God placed you in that has you struggling at the moment? What what challenge in your life is reminding you of your need for God's presence? If there's not any area of your life that you can think of wherein you are being forced to rely more closely on God's presence day by day, And I want to suggest that perhaps you're not living out all the implications of the gospel. I think one of the neat things that the Holy Spirit does to us, one of the neat things that God does in our lives, is he continually challenges us to be more obedient, to live out love thy neighbor as thyself in a more real way. If you're not needing to rely on God in your life, I think perhaps you've gotten too comfortable. I want to encourage you to evaluate how you might be more obedient to the gospel, what that looks like. God's presence comes as a comfort to Moses here. And he obeys him, even though it's very difficult. He heads back to Egypt. And God again reminds him what he must do when he arrives in verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. I think this verse reminds us of the central melody of Exodus, that melody line, which is this. God works sovereignly to save a special people for his glory. God is going to perform all kinds of signs and wonders through Moses before Pharaoh, ultimately Egypt, so that the world will know of his power. God, in hardening Pharaoh's heart, will be able to fully showcase his power over his enemies. Now, Pharaoh's hardness of heart is a theme that's going to recur over and over again. His stubbornness is actually mentioned some 20 times throughout the book of Exodus, and it's mentioned in three different ways. 
Sometimes we are told that his hardness of heart is the result of his own obstinacy. Sometimes it's attributed to God. And other times it's just neutral. We're just told Pharaoh's heart became hard. So, for example, in verse 19 of chapter 3, Pharaoh's resistance seems to be his own doing. And here, in verse 21 of chapter 4, it seems to be the will of God. And so there's this real tension that exists in the narrative. It's not simply that God will harden Pharaoh's heart, but that the cause of Pharaoh's hardness of heart is said to come from two different sources, both Pharaoh and God himself. And so we might ask, who is responsible for Pharaoh's hard heart? God or Pharaoh? And the answer is yes. You see, Pharaoh's will was also God's will. God not only knew that Pharaoh would refuse to let his people go, but he actually ordained it. God is completely sovereign, and Pharaoh's decisions are his own, and he's responsible for them. There's much, much more to say on this topic, but we'll have plenty of opportunity down the road. But this paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility is one that we've encountered uh, and we'll encounter more and more as we read the Bible. And it's not one that I don't think is a puzzle to be solved, but one of those great mysteries uh, to be marveled at, to be adored. And as we think about it, I also want to point out that it's not a problem for the writers of Scripture. they, They never struggle with this idea that God is ultimately in control of all things, that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. They're they're not drawing lines in the sand and saying, it's all up to Pharaoh or it's all up to God. They're completely comfortable with the tension that exists, and and so too should we be. Ultimately here, we see that Pharaoh's will is God's will also. God tells Moses in verse 22, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So here we have an answer to another question. Why will God save Israel? It's because Israel is his firstborn son. The firstborn in the ancient world is one who was specially favored with the inheritance and one who would represent the father more and more as he grew into maturity. He'd be given more and more responsibility. In fact, the, the firstborn was so important in Israelite society that the son was actually devoted to God, belonged specifically to God so that he couldn't be taken and raised by his parents without first a special payment of redemption or like a buyback fee that symbolized the family's recognition that the son was by rights God's and not theirs. As I read that, I'm like, I'm not so sure this is out of practice now. I have to pay a lot of money to the hospital when I have kids to bring them home. So maybe it's kind of the same thing. Not really. I'm just probably bitter about it. Anyhow, God is declaring that Israel belongs to him. This is important because he is saying the identity of the Hebrew people predates their years of enslavement and is rooted in the Abrahamic covenant. Israel is God's son, not Pharaoh's slave. And God wants his son back. And I say to you, verse 23, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Notice God says, let my son go so that he may worship me. God's demand for Israel's release is not simply for Israel to be free from service to Egypt, but for Israel to be free to serve the Lord. 
God wants to free his son to worship him. And if Pharaoh will not give up God's firstborn son, to whom all the firstborn belong in any case, then Pharaoh's own firstborn son must die. This is an appropriate punishment. It's fair. Egypt has harmed the firstborn of God, and if they continue, they will lose their firstborn. And it is ultimately through the blood of the firstborn sons that Israel's deliverance comes. So too will Moses's. If you'll look with me at some of the most enigmatic and strange verses in all of Scripture, starting with verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. One of the things that makes this little pericope notoriously difficult to understand is that it's loaded with ambiguous pronouns, right? Nobody, it's really unclear who the hymns and he's are. Who, who are these pronouns referring to? In fact, even in verse 25 where Moses' name appears, there's actually a pronoun. <laughs> but your, your translators have tried to help the best they can by inserting Moses' name. And they do this because as mysterious as the text is, there are a few safe assumptions that we can make. First, the object of God's wrath is Moses. Uh, No one really disputes this, and it makes the most sense in the context. Secondly, God is probably angry with Moses because his son is not circumcised. And then thirdly, Sipporah's circumcision of her son appeases God's wrath and causes him to relent. So, So with those bits of information in mind, we can help have a better picture of what's going on here. We've got Moses and his family on their way to Egypt, and they stop to lodge at an overnight campsite, maybe think like a contemporary KOA if you've ever seen the campsites of America, and they're going to spend the night there. And then we're simply told that the Lord seeks to kill Moses. How he seeks to kill Moses is not at all clear. A lot of people speculate that he was really sick, struck with some kind of illness, But the point is, is that Moses was as good as dead, right? When God seeks to kill you, uh, he gets his way. He's not going to fail at that. And so his demise is directly related to a failure to circumcise his son. I think if nothing else, we should learn that circumcision was a big deal, right? Moses can argue, whine, pout, and hold his breath about going to Egypt. And God deals patiently with him. But circumcision, it seems, is another matter. Failure to circumcise is met with swift punishment and judgment. The Lord seeks to kill Moses. Because of a failure, I think this is because a failure to circumcise is a failure to keep God's covenant, which we read about in Genesis 17. This is what it says. This is my covenant, which you are to keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you at eight days old is to be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. 
If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The consequence for a failure to be circumcised is to be cut off from the people of God. And it seems that God is going to punish Moses for withholding the sign of the covenant from his offspring. Circumcision was important in showing Israel's devotion to God. It was kind of like a wedding ring. In our culture, if somebody has a ring on their left hand or left finger, their left ring finger, there it is. If somebody has a ring on their left ring finger, you know, well, they're not available. They belong to somebody else. Circumcision is Israel's way of demonstrating their loyalty and devotion, their belonging to God. And to help us think about this, it might do well, because the sign of circumcision actually corresponds to baptism, right? Circumcision in Israel corresponds to baptism in the church. We're told about this in Colossians a little bit. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of the Messiah. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. See, like circumcision in Israel, baptism in the church is the Christian's way of demonstrating loyalty and devotion to God. It brings one into church membership and expresses belonging to God. Uh, Baptism really is the, the beginning of an obedient Christian life. Now, if you want to take the name of Jesus as your own, you have to say your wedding vows to Jesus. Put on the wedding ring of Jesus by repenting of your sins and being baptized and living with the bride of Jesus. God's people signifying their loyalty to him is fundamental to relationship with God. This is why circumcision is so important. It's why it's one of the first things they do when they come out of the Exodus, right? They, they, they get out of Egypt and they celebrate the Passover. And as they celebrate that first Passover, one of the things they do is all the males are circumcised. It's that important. I don't know, there's supposed to be feasts, it's this big celebration. I don't know how excited I would be about that, celebrating and hey, by the way, we're all going to get circumcised together. <laughs> I, might, I might put a damper on that first Passover. All that to say, Moses' failure to circumcise his son is a big enough deal for God to punish him. You see, sin has consequences. And no one is exempt, not even Moses. All of us are guilty of sin. All of us have de-godded God by doing things our way rather than his way. All of us, like Moses in this particular context, have broken the covenant. We've failed to live up to the ideals of God. All of us deserve death. God can rightly seek to kill each and every human being. And he would be just for doing so. That's not what he does. In fact, Moses, even though he could be rightly killed here, ends up living. He lives because of the obedience of his wife and the blood of his son. 
Sipporah, who is apparently aware of what's at stake here and why God is punishing Moses, acts quite heroically. She quickly takes a stone knife and circumcises her son by cutting off his foreskin and then touches it to or casts it at Moses' feet. Now, feet is a Hebrew euphemism uh, for his genitals most of the time. Uh, whether or not she, she touched it to his, his feet or cast it at his feet, I, I don't know. I don't know that it's super important either. I think that what's important is that her actions demonstrate the great truth that we are only right with God through blood and his covenant promises. See, God's wrath towards Moses is satisfied by the obedience of his wife and the blood of his son. And and it's so interesting, as Sipporah circumcises her son and does all this, she calls Moses a bridegroom or a husband of blood to her. And and Keel and Delich are really helpful in uh, allowing us to understand this. This is what they say. Sipporah says this because she has been compelled, as it were, to acquire and purchase Moses anew as a husband by shedding the blood of her son. Moses has been as good as taken from her by the deadly attack which has been made upon him. But she purchased his life by the blood of her son. And so she receives him back, as it were, from the dead and marries him anew. He was, in fact, a bridegroom of blood to her. Friends, this is what God our Father does for us in Christ. He purchases us back from death, back from the death we rightly deserve, by the obedience and the blood of the Son. Salvation comes through the blood of the Son. Jesus keeps all the conditions of the covenant perfectly. He obeys God where we have failed. Jesus pours out his blood, absorbs the wrath of God, It is cut off from the presence of God. He takes the penalty due to us for our sins and our covenant breaking. It's cut off on our behalf. Then Jesus, having satisfied God's wrath against his people, rises from the dead and enters peacefully into the presence of his Father. Only God can take the wrath of God and survive. We may only enjoy the presence of God when we are united by faith with the Son of God. See, it's our union with Jesus that makes whatever is true of him true of us. In Christ, we have obeyed the law perfectly. In Christ, we have paid the penalty for our sins. We have been crucified with Christ. In Christ, we enjoy peace with God and the very presence of God. Why did God save us? Same reason he saved Israel. Because we are his firstborn son. Our union with Jesus, the true Israel, makes what's true of him true of us. Christ is the ultimate embodiment of the true intimacy between the Father and his people. Christ is the new Israel. Christ came so that those who believe in him can share in that sonship and be part of God's family. The church appropriates the promise of God only in light of the work of Christ. We are God's son, Peter ends writes, the new Israel, only because Christ is God's son first. The church is God's son by virtue of its relationship to Christ, the true son. That wonderful relationship which is repeatedly described by Paul as in Christ. 
And this is a staggering truth. That those who put their faith in Jesus inherit all that belongs to Jesus. I mean, how wonderful do those words in Galatians 4 fall upon our ears. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. But if you are here and you are not a Christian, this is the good news. This is the reason that we gather together. Because God has bought us back from death by the obedience and the blood of his Son. I implore you to respond to this good news with faith. Turn from your sin. Follow Jesus. Inherit the peace and the presence of God. After Moses' near-death experience, God sends Aaron to meet him as promised. And we read this in verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which had been spoken to him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of all the people. And the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Moses and Aaron are able to gather the people as promised and the people believe as promised. The meeting that Moses had been all stressed out about goes really, really easy. It's actually a pretty easy win. They show up, he tells them what God told them to tell, told him to tell them, and they believe. What a relief this must have been for him. And I think what a simple lesson for us. God's word has told us that he is sovereign and that he is providentially ordering all things, that our times are in his hands makes worrying very, very frivolous. I think our worry is often evidence of mistrust. So when we really believe God, we can act according to his word and wisdom and then be content with whatever outcome presents itself. There's no reason to get tied up in knots because God is involved. He's good and he's faithful. He will keep his promises to his people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. I love this. The people believe and worship God because he has visited them. This is such an awesome picture because they're worshipping right now, but they're still in slavery. People are not yet delivered. And things are going to get a lot harder, but still they worship. Again, we can learn from them. Life this side of the New Jerusalem is still filled with suffering and loss and the presence of sin. But still we worship because we look not to what is seen, but to what is unseen. And we believe the promise of God that indeed Jesus has saved us from sin's power 
and its penalty, and that he is returning to save us from its very presence. Believe his promise. Give him the worship that he is due. Last thing I want to bring your attention to is that they worship God. It says, because he visited them in their affliction. I think this is a really awesome word, the word visited here. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the same word uh, that we, uh, it comes from the same root as bishop or pastor. Same word that's used in James 1.27. It says, uh, this is true religion, to visit orphans in their affliction. Some translate to care for, to look after instead of visit. But the meaning is the same. It means more than a quick chat. It means to get involved or to shepherd. I think throughout redemptive history, God is the God who visits his people. He looks after his people. He cares for his people. He gets involved in their situations. And ultimately, he rescues them. I mean, consider how the words used throughout Scripture. I'm going to read you a few places. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Naomi arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. God's gracious visitation should lead us to exalt him. It should lead to God-glorifying exaltation. I mean, praise God that he has visited us in our affliction. Praise God that he visited us in our slavery to sin. How wonderful that he has come to us in our slavery and freed us through Christ. How wonderful that now as his people he calls us to visit those who are in affliction. We are called to bring God's presence into the lives of those who are hurting, lost, and searching. We are commissioned to know, rejoice in, and share the gospel in word and in action. So let us together faithfully proclaim that salvation comes through the blood of the Son with the hope that those who hear will believe and worship the only living God, Jesus Christ, together with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how rich and deep it is. Thank you that you speak to us throughout all of it, oftentimes in unexpected places. Thank you that your word is true and that you are faithful to your promises. Because of your faithfulness to your promises, not anything that we have done, we get to enjoy your presence get to enjoy life together with you. Thank you that you lived the life, Lord Jesus, that we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose from the dead, and are currently seated at the right hand of God. Thank you that in you we have been crucified and are dead to sin, 
and that in you we are alive to righteousness. Friends of God, this is good news. And we thank you for it, Father. And we pray in the name of the Son. Amen.